Hey, it's Nikki back on Gut Plus Science Healthcare with a beautiful episode that completely illustrates vulnerability. I can see how his mentor, Brene Brown, shows up in his work for sure. So inspiring. Today, I'm with Nigel Geergraw, Chief Wellness Officer at Oshner Health. We're talking about destigmatizing mental health at work. Nigel, welcome to Gut Plus Science Healthcare. Let's talk about destigmatizing mental health, especially at work, and why this is a necessity. Hey, Nikki. Uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, you know, as we emerge from the pandemic, we're seeing some pretty, um, pretty sobering statistics. Um, there was an article out of Mount Sinai in New York studying frontline healthcare workers, uh, 39% PTSD or uh, anxiety disorder. A similar study from Yale, about 25%. And Nikki, I was in Toronto for SARS-1, which was much more limited in scope, but there were some very well-studied long-term mental health sequelae in Toronto after that uh, epidemic. An article last month in JAMA Psychiatry um, described an alarmingly high rate of suicides, particularly amongst our nurses. And this is challenging us because as leaders, we need to be more proactive in meeting the mental health needs of our employees. We need to take a hard look, a hard look at the stigma that exists in today's medical culture with respect to mental health. You know, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, but this is a culture kind of like the military that has historically said, you know, being vulnerable, reaching out for help is not okay. Particularly our physicians are expected to like know everything and at times be superheroes. I guess this comes with some positives for society. We work hard, we study hard, but this culture has kind of permeated our industry. And it definitely comes with a cost. Decreased vulnerability leads to uh, diminished psychological safety in the workplace. And this, this is what adversely affects patient care. When medical professionals do not seek treatment for mental health, this can lead to burnout. And there's well-documented associations of burnout with uh, diminished quality and safety decreased patient experience, uh, diminished discretionary effort, uh, physicians and nurses and healthcare professionals reducing their FTE status or exiting the profession. And getting back to the nurses, I talked about that study. You know, here during the pandemic, you know, early on, the rate limiting step was not stuff. It, it wasn't beds. It wasn't ventilators. It wasn't PPE. It was staffing our units with nurses, and we can't afford short-term or long-term to have nurses exiting this profession. That'll be a huge problem. Nigel, I'm grateful that you painted the problem the way that you did. It's a big issue, and it's really affecting the world, and it needs addressed. And I personally have a couple of people close to me that are struggling and have had some challenges around workplace support. And so when you and I got connected, I was really looking forward to this because I think, you know, not only for the people close to me, but everyone, all of us have someone close to us and leading workplaces where people really need these insights. So before we really dive in, just some key takeaways and things and some stories that you'll share. I'd love for you to talk about why is this an important topic for you to lead change around? Yeah, it is personal for me. Um, Nikki, I don't think I'd heard of burnout until uh, 2013 uh, when I returned to Toronto for my med school reunion. And I found that one of my friends and, and med school colleagues, Craig, had committed suicide a, a few months earlier. 
And it wasn't just that he committed suicide. He, he was a, a very prominent, uh, famous surgeon in Ontario. I think he performed the first telerobotic laparoscopic surgery in the world. So you could Google him. And it was alarming. You could see 2009 documentation of alcoholism. The following year, losing his uh, license and privileges, a criminal case with witness tampering, and then even like a description of a high-speed police chase across rural Ontario. So I was devastated for all the reasons that a friend would be devastated. This was a dear friend. And then I started thinking about it, you know, from the perspective of physician, as a physician leader, there's really no industry more complex in healthcare. As I think about it, in order to meet the challenges associated with healthcare reform, we need the collective A game of our healthcare workers to achieve great things. And, you know, I look at well-being in the workplace as a vehicle to get there and, and burnout's kind of a existential threat to achieving those goals. Talk about how big of a priority destigmatizing mental health takes in your well-being strategy at Oshner Health. It certainly plays a huge role in our overall strategy and certainly a big part of the strategy of the office I lead. Pre-COVID, the office I led, which is called the Office of Professional Wellbeing, had a pretty solid evidence-based well-being strategy that was just focused at that time on our physicians and our advanced practice providers. And it was heavily focused on things like practice efficiency, promoting advanced team-based care, developing our leaders, because these were the things that appeared to drive professional fulfillment the most. And I knew resilience, Nikki, was a, was a part of that, but I was really timid about leading with that because I didn't want our physicians to think that it was just the organization saying, if you do a little more yoga, things are going to be okay. And then sort of COVID hit, and we were a big hotspot in March here in New Orleans. A couple of things became kind of evident to me. One is that we had to really move down Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Folks can't focus on the job at hand if they're worried about things like, is there going to be enough PPE in the workplace? Is my job going to be safe? Is my salary going to be safe? Are there enough ventilators? What about childcare? And organizations stood up childcare for all our employees that needed it over the course of a weekend. And I, I certainly can't take credit for that. That was, uh, you know, our other executive team members. But so there, there was that. And then the second thing was really broadening the need to broaden our scope uh, to well-being for all our 30,000 employees. And this um, led to, you know, generally a broader discussion about overall employee well-being. So not just mental health, but physical, emotional, and economic health of our employees. And Nigel, you said earlier, healthcare is a very challenging industry. It is. And that's why Gut Plus Science created this sub-series to focus on equipping and helping healthcare leaders specifically. And so I, I just want to make note that I think we can take your learnings, especially in the most challenging year that all of us have experienced, I think, and in the very challenging industry of healthcare and really apply it to any business. So whoever's listening, I think, is going to be able to apply many of the learnings that you've had. And I just want to ask you to share some of the examples of your efforts thus far in helping to shift mindsets in the workplace in a, among your team members and helping to shift behaviors around mental health. 
the first comment I, I would make is not getting hunker, not getting hunkered down on, on one strategy. You have to adapt. And certainly, um, COVID was a, a time to, uh, sort of learn to adapt our strategy. I would say in the first wave, Nikki, so I'm talking about March, April, it was all reactive and it was all sort of crisis support. So our office, the Office of Professional Wellbeing, partnered very quickly with our behavioral health service line. And some of the things that we offered, probably the, the, the thing that was most well received was rounding on the units that were most distressed and offering structured debriefing sessions. We stood, stood up again with our behavioral health service line, uh, 24-7 crisis support. We developed f- uh, physical decompression zones um, where people could go mid-shift or post-shift to just de-stress. There were even some mindfulness exercises that folks could engage in. We developed something called COVID Connect, which was a peer support program for our employees that did test positive um, so that they could connect with other employees that had gone through it. And then we um, developed a, a leader toolkit to help our, our leaders address the needs of, uh, of those they lead. So that, that was wave one. I would say as we emerged from wave one, what I found is that there was much more of an appetite for employees to discuss resilience. So exactly what I shied away from in 2019. So we then partnered with what we call our Oshner Learning Institute to develop a, a variety of resilience offerings. These could be structured three to four hour courses um, that were offered, some webinars. And then probably the most popular thing were these sort of bite-sized, uh, we called them the silver lining series, bite-sized YouTube videos. Um, they're kind of like we're little mini TEDx talks where we have a very uh, occupational therapist who does this, Lauren Siegel, would go through different aspects of mindfulness uh, and resilience. And these, these were very well received. As we got into August and September, you know, I want to say I was personally languishing. So languishing is kind of this middle child between uh, flourishing and depression. And I generally in July, August go through a bit of a funk. I, I recognize the triggers. July and August represent uh, 20 years ago, the, the birth of my son, Bennett, and then his death the following year. So uh, it's been a while now, but uh, I go through that funk. But, you know, pre-COVID, I was able to compensate for that by going back to Canada, hanging out with friends and loved ones. Um, this year, I've had a knee injury, which sort of prevented exercise. And then I kind of had this aha moment. I know everybody has their own story, but people probably aren't prepared to come forward with this story. So I sent an open letter in September to all uh, 30,000 employees, um, and it was entitled, How Are You Really? I talked about myself. I talked about, you know, the mental health stigma in in, uh, healthcare, and the uh, reception was overwhelming. It was the uh, most read executive message that had been sent out. And it wasn't just people reading it. There were like two-page email responses. So it really seemed to to resonate. And I, I say that because vulnerability precedes trust, you know, in those that you lead. So um, I thought that was kind of important. 
And then lastly, uh, more recently, Nikki, in the last several months, we've been taking sort of a broader inventory of our mental health offerings. We saw last year, actually surprisingly, or maybe not surprisingly, EAP utilization going down. And when I was doing rounding a few months ago during our big third wave in January, I heard from people that they wanted to be met in different ways. So, you know, sure, there's the kind of high acuity mental health setting. So this is a kind of an opt-in approach where an employing crisis, uh, you know, activates the EAP program or makes an appointment with psychiatry. But people were craving lower acuity, uh, acuity kind of on-demand offerings. Um, and some were asking for sort of opt-out offerings where, you know, it just becomes a normal part of the rhythm, you know, a leader checking in every couple of weeks. And more recently, we've been partnering with some mental health startups, trying to be more creative and less traditional in how we're meeting our employees' needs. I really appreciate your vulnerability, and I know that that provides comfort to some of our listeners right now. So I just thank you for sharing you. And uh, lately, there's been a lot of use of the phrase, it's okay to not be okay. And that's excellent. I will share. I was um, not sure whether my executive team would support that, but I'm, I'm pleased that they did. And I was honestly quite terrified, uh, you know, about sending that email out. But I, th I think it was the right thing to do at the time. Yeah. And, you know, lately this message of it's okay to not be okay is pretty loud out there right now. I mean, especially in, in my circles. How does Oshner convey that message? Like you shared the idea of the email, um, how are you really? And I think that's a great example. What are other things maybe you've done or just ideas you've had to share with our leader listeners right now about illustrating it's okay to not be okay? That's one part of it. And I think our one over leaders are much more willing to share things that they're struggling with, with those that they lead. So the other part of this is you, you can't manage or lead others if, you, if you're not managing yourself. So it, it kind of starts with our leaders uh, managing the different dimensions of their own energy tank. You know, I heard the term, Nikki, that in 2021, we're in a human energy crisis. And that is the demand for our energy is mis mismatched with the supply of the energy that we have to give. And so it really boils down to managing the physical dimensions of your energy. So this includes breaks. And this doesn't have to be long breaks. This can be sort of five-minute micro-recovery sessions while you're at work. It also involves rest, nutrition, exercise. You know, obviously, there's the mental dimension uh, in this, you know, this is like being in the moment, practicing uh, mindfulness. Uh, certainly, there's an emotional dimension, and that really is about being intentional about connecting with those that mean something to you, particularly your family, the home team, and the spiritual dimension. So really making sense of this and connecting to the purpose of what we do at work. So I think that's one thing, and we've tried to, tried to talk to our leaders about that. And then it also is, you know, you can talk the talk, but you have to, you know, walk the walk. So we, we talk to our leaders about role modeling these behaviors. So you can't on the one hand say to our frontline employees, you know, just, just go home and relax and then call them at night or, 
email them and interrupt them. So I think you have to be consistent in how you, um, you know, model those behaviors. You know, again, I'll go back to the, uh, it's sort of the Brene Brown thing. You can't get trust without being vulnerable. Vulnerability precedes trust. I mentioned earlier a, a toolkit that we provided for our leaders. And a lot of this was really just encouraging our leaders to stay close, communicate often with those that they're leading, find tidbits about their personal life and share stuff about your life. And then I'm not sure where this is going to go. I, I have a call later on with leaders from J&J who I think have been outside the, the traditional healthcare sector, have really been industry leaders in terms of normalizing mental health discussions within their workforce. I want to explore with them what would go into developing a, a mental health resource group or affinity group. I'm not sure whether that's possible and see if we can do that here. I'm not sure whether we can. But when you think about Nikki, many of us or many of those that have had struggles at times really probably have the qualities that we want in healthcare. These are individuals who certainly have demonstrated grit to overcome what they've overcome. They probably likely have, they're very empathetic communicators. So certainly these are folks that you want to retain and maybe even recruit. You mentioned something on our last conversation that really stood out to me, uh, the importance of leaders being better stewards to their team members. Could you elaborate on that? I'm not sure really what I meant, but I, I, I guess I was probably using that, Nikki, as a, as a way of role modeling and communicating both vertically upwards to the C-suite, what's going on with your groups, but more importantly, communicating with, with those they lead about what's going on in the organization, being honest, uh, but being optimistic. And I think that's what I was getting at, but I may have misspoke. So, you know, in your experience with the email that you sent, that was a, a great action by you and got a, a nice response from employees about how are you really? And you said, I kind of went out on a limb and, you know, did this. I didn't know the support I was going to get. Talk to or speak to listeners right now that are on a leadership team or in a leadership level and are trying to figure out ways to get other leaders to buy in on the importance of this. What would you mentor them on? How would you recommend that? I just did an interview with the advisory board, and it's the first time I received permission to share that internal communication with folks outside the organization so it's accessible. That, that would be certainly an example, but there are other examples. I would encourage folks that haven't seen some of Brene Brown's YouTubes or read her, her book, Dare to Lead. Start looking at that because she's probably the greatest speaker I've seen on the, on the power of vulnerability and all the good things that come with that when you lead with vulnerability. She's incredible. I think I've read every single one of her books. Anytime she's on a podcast, I'm listening to it. Yes, she is. She is incredible. Any story you wanted to share before I start to wrap up? You know, getting back to the need to destigmatize mental health. So that, I think there's two components to that. One is really creating a belief system that it's okay to come forward. And we, we've talked about that earlier in the podcast. But the second component is we have to remove barriers 
And, you know, I go back to SARS-1 in Toronto. Some of the, the good things that seem to happen from that is that, you know, licensing agencies sort of removed explicit questions about mental health from license renewals, credentialing boards, removing specific questions about mental health. So, you know, it's one thing to sort of say, hey, believe it, it's okay. But if we send messages every year that, you know, tell me if you have a history of mental health, that sort of just creates a sort of a confusion, I think. And then I would just go back to variety uh, when you when you look at mental health offering. So again, opt-in, that's important, but that is really requiring people to bubble up and declare themselves when they're at their most burnt out or their most depressed. Reach out earlier, uh, figure out you know, novel ways to, to connect with folks and, and talk about everything but mental health. Nigel, I really appreciate your time today. And I know that the mentorship that you provided to our listeners is very much appreciated. Thank you so much. We're going to take just a quick break to hear from our podcast sponsor today. And then we're going to come back to what we do on every show where we learn a little bit more about our guests on our lightning round. We'll be right back. Attention healthcare leaders, have you heard of Wambi, our show sponsor? Wambi's holistic real-time recognition and culture transformation solution improves the healthcare experience for patients and staff through the power of gratitude. Its gamified technology delivers real-time feedback from patients and other team members that recognizes, rewards, and motivates optimal care. To learn how Wambi can be an early indicator for predictive changes in HCAPs, check out their recent success story with Upper Chesapeake Health, their case study just released, and it's in the show notes. All right, we're back on Gut Plus Science Healthcare with Nigel Gergraw, and I'm excited to launch into our lightning round so we can learn just a little bit more about Nigel. He opened up great today. It was awesome just to hear of some of his stories, but let's hear about some of his favorite things. So Nigel, we'd love to hear, and it'll go on our recommended reading list, what's your favorite book of all time or a favorite recent read? That's kind of, I don't know what my favorite book of all time is, but I can tell you the one book that I couldn't put down and I read basically from start to finish. Uh, and that was the Cider House Rules by, by John Irving. I just love that book. Something about it really resonated with me. And that's been decades ago. During COVID, the, the best book distraction for me was this book called 28 Summers. It's a love story. <laughs> um, it's kind of based on the same time next year movie and it's set in Nantucket and it's just a, a great distraction. And I enjoyed reading that during the summer months last year. What is your favorite hobby when you're not working? Well, there's a few. I like trying new restaurants and New Orleans is a great place to do that. I'm embarrassed to say, but those that know me well, I, I love to dance. <laughs> and uh, uh, I guess there hasn't been a lot of dancing during COVID. Um, and then I mentioned my knee injury, but I'm looking forward to um, that outlet when we emerge from COVID. And then uh, I'm ashamed to say watching football. So this may be in the top five things that my wife and I disagree about. And that is my desire and capacity to, to watch NFL football, particularly our Saints. And how about a favorite vacation spot? Many. I think the one I've been daydreaming about the most during COVID is Rome. 
that's where my wife and I honeymooned. And then in the summer of 2018, we took a trip at the end of August, beginning of September with another couple. And it was perfect. Like it seemed, maybe it wasn't perfect at the time, but I thought it was going to be hot. The weather every day was like basically 80 Fahrenheit, dry, sunny. And then it was uh, our first experiment with Airbnb. I was a little worried about that, but we just knocked it out of the park. Uh, we got this kind of, you know, beautiful kind of penthouse Airbnb that wasn't that expensive and just had this panoramic view of the city. And everything about that trip was perfect to me. I want to go back. Finally, how can our listeners connect with you after the show today? I'm a LinkedIn and, and Twitter person. So uh, my Twitter handle is at N Girbra. So N is the first initial, uh, last name G-I-R-G-R-A-H. I'm on LinkedIn. You can just look me up. If you want to do Instagram, I'm just at, at Girbra. So those, those are the ways to connect with me. All right, Nigel, your heart for impacting people was shining bright throughout this episode. So many key takeaways. Here's my truth you can act on. Number one, we need the collective A game for all to buy in and champion change. And the way to that is creating a belief system as a whole. Number two, remove barriers that conflict with supporting mental health. Number three, Remember your strategy will evolve. Embrace that mindset and iterate and try new things to support the end goal. Number four, be like Nigel. Practice vulnerability. It really inspires others. We just left the world a little bit better. Now go do something with it.